so Jen Morales is here with us today, the latest, our latest and greatest. So when I became a prosecutor, there was like this mythical police officer, Jen oh, Morales. And probably the most decorated female police officer in the history of drug investigations in Western New York um, was famous within the law enforcement community as somebody who really got a lot of bad guys. And somehow the bad guys would still like you even when you caught them and they went to prison for a long time, which we never really understood. So you retired as a police officer and I usually tell a little story about everybody. So one of the, we've worked together on many cases. You're in private investigator now doing defense work, matrimonials. You can explain all that stuff, but we had a really serious murder case involving our office and there was a witness in California. I called Jen on the phone said, what are you doing in about uh, four hours? And she said, I don't know, what am I doing? I said, how about going to California? And she said, sure, no problem. And 48 hours later, she had been to California, met with a very serious known gang member, gone to IHOP, sat there for three hours. Denny's. Oh, sorry. Denny's. And got this guy's life story, understand everything there was to understand about a horrible um, case involving family member and a person who died a horribly sad story where we were representing a person and we were able to from getting hired getting Jen on board and having a great understanding of of this case within 48 hours and like, like it was nothing and there are so few people whether they're investigators or police officers the answer was yes and then we'll figure out the details later and and it really changed the course of a person's life so that's one case of many that we've had with Jen. She's had so many great results as a police officer and now as a private investigator. So what? Uh, that's the start. Well, and honestly, it's how I start a lot of my interviews with people. And I believe it's how I started my interview in California with the person I interviewed for that case. I was that cop. I'm not afraid to... I've never been afraid of the truth. I, I believe it's so important to always tell the truth. Obviously, as a police officer, you have to tell little white lies when you're interviewing someone, um, and you're allowed to. As a private investigator, you're really not allowed to be deceitful in any way. But I do like to start my interviews off with people by telling them, I was that cop for 23 and a half years that... I believed everyone that went to jail was guilty because I worked with the same people for my entire career. We did a thorough job and I trusted everybody I worked with. And if we made mistakes, the majority of us would own those mistakes. And I was also, you know, mentored by amazing prosecutors and you know, older police officers who stress the importance of always telling the truth, how it's going to make you look in front of a jury, owning your mistakes. We're human. And if somebody, you know, got out of jail because you made a mistake, it is what it is. There's always somebody else. So I think it's very, when I start off my interviews now, because never in a million years could you have told me as a private investigator, I would be doing criminal defense work. 
you know, I don't like the negative comments that people say, like, oh, you've gone to the dark side. I don't like that. Um, Why? It's such a, you know, I think that I would have said that too, right, as a, as a police investigator, officer, um, you know, oh, so-and-so went to the dark side. I don't like it, and I would like to change that. I think that I have changed it with some people. Mm-hmm. Um, because everybody that is arrested does deserve to have good representation, their own investigation done when, you know, there might not have been an investigation done by the police. So, you know, I, now I was talked into looking at some cases in Ontario County because one thing I stand by and I think you know this too, Bob, is that even when I started to do a little bit of criminal defense work, I refused to do any defense work against the city of Rochester. You know, any cases that involved city police or city investigators or Monroe County or the district attorney's office, the federal building where I spent, you know, the majority of my last 10 years of my career, I refused to do cases that involved anyone. Those are my colleagues, those are my friends, those are my mentors. But I do believe that some cases warrant me working on, such as the case you talked about. You know, that was, I looked at it, I read the documents, I looked at the evidence. I have the ability to see both sides of things and I have the ability to put myself, you know, in a scenario and understand it. And that was an egregious, um, I, you know, I, I guess I still don't even have the right words because I still don't believe our client should have gone to prison at all. I really don't. Um, it was an unfortunate tragedy all the way around. Um, and after I left California, I knew that had a little bit more time been put into that case, a little bit more work, a little bit more empathy and thought process, he should not have been charged, our client. So, And you've worked on several cases with Greg, that case, other cases, and, and sometimes we take pleas because, but we can take a plea. Forced to. Well, in almost. Us, yeah, I mean, the case you guys did down in the Southern Tier, where it's um, after a really good investigation, a very detailed investigation, you know what you're up against at trial. And it is also can be good lawyering and good investigation because you've turned over every stone, every leaf, whatever uh, Nobles likes to say there. And you know what your likely outcome at trial is. And if you can get a guy who's looking at 25 or 30 years in prison, 10, that's that's okay. It's pretty good yeah, that's from okay. life. That's okay. Uh, that's okay too. And yeah. it's, again, based on the truth and based on the evidence and based on the facts and able to convey that to a prosecutor to say this is the, this is the real evidence and this is your risk. And you know, so by what you do, by what Greg does when you guys work together, that's 10 years, that's a decade of somebody sitting in a jail cell just by talking to people looking at evidence and 
it's not, everybody's not innocent, but we can still defend people who aren't innocent and, and do a Absolutely. really, really great job for them. Right, because the police have to follow the rules, yeah. and so do the prosecutors, just like we do. You know, there's rules in place for a reason to protect people, and I take pride in that, and I, I enjoy digging into any case, no matter how small it is to no matter how big it is. So we, we love name dropping because that's who listens to us sometimes. So the, the good prosecutors, I'm, I'm going to guess one of them is Tom Brilbeck. Tom was one of the very first ones. Yep. Very first. But you were doing mostly narcotic investigations for a while? I was an undercover narcotics investigator for over 18 years. And so who, who are the other prosecutors from, from you know, a generation ago that people should know about? Well, one of the biggest, one of my biggest mentors is Rob Marangola. I remember, um, so my team in narcotics, we were tasked one night in October of 2004. Uh, there had been a gang shooting earlier in the day, and we were, the higher-ups were afraid there was going to be retaliation that night. So we were tasked with setting up on the street, Shelter Street, and the surrounding streets in case this retaliation occurred. And our work hours were usually uh, 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. or, you know, 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. And my team set up on that Shelter Street and the surrounding streets. And long story short is this Plymouth Rock gang ended up shooting up a house with a grandmother and her grandchild in the house in front of us. And it was from an automatic assault rifle. Um, I personally was further down Shelter Street, closer to Genesee, and I could see the muzzle flash down the street. The uniform officers that support us, because we were undercovers, we were in undercover vehicles, we called out immediately. We followed the, it was a conversion van, followed it out of the area, and the van pulled over probably within a couple of blocks. So, so I, and please don't tell us anything we're not supposed to know, but you are, oh, are, this you, is all, are this you a, a narcotics investigator? Would that be your title at the time, or undercover police officer? So at the, we were under all undercover. So I was undercover from 1999 until I retired in 2017. And so, so that particular day, you, you have a, a group of undercover officers and are communicating also with uniformed officers. Yeah. So when you know being in narcotics, it's technically called the special investigation section, narcotics unit. As an undercover, we are responsible for, we execute search warrants, we manage confidential informants, we conduct surveillance details for a number of crimes, mostly narcotics and weapons trafficking. We do drug buys ourselves, we buy guns ourselves. I bought guns off the streets of Rochester. I've bought drugs over 300 times personally in Rochester. Uh, we have our confidential informants 
buy drugs, guns, give us information's, uh, information. We draft search warrants. We execute eavesdropping warrants, which are, you know, when we list wiretaps. 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 Right. Um, we, you know, in my last 10 years, I found a knack for finding murderers or putting together multi-defendant conspiracy cases over at the federal building. Um, you know, once you gain experience, your career in narcotics is endless, honestly. And it's invaluable to the police department. And I know that, you know, there's still really good investigators there that are continuing that work. Yeah. I think I interrupted your story though. So you, you yes. get into the van and... So we, so it is, it's a team. And I worked with the same investigators for almost my whole career. Joe Bergani, Dave Swain, Dave Franklin. Um, my boss when I left was Mark Lee. And we went over there to Shelter Street. We sat there <clears throat> almost all night. My boss at the time was Sergeant Addie McDonald, and it was close to 2 a.m. My boss was going to head back and start to do paperwork. Nothing was happening, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this van pulls on the street, shoots into a house on Shelter Street. It was a lot of rounds. I don't remember, you know, sitting here exactly how many. It was a lot. The uniform officers, so whenever we are on a surveillance detail, the tactical unit, so I was also in the tactical unit for about four years prior to becoming an undercover. And the tactical unit is a specialized unit that is a proactive unit in the city of Rochester that they don't just answer 911 calls, but they proactively target problem areas of the city. And they also assist in locating fugitives from justice. Uh, the tactical unit was a unit that supported narcotics. And whenever we were going to go execute a search warrant or conduct a surveillance detail, they were always in the area to help us. You know, because we couldn't necessarily just jump out of our cars, not to say that we never did, we have, and So act. that night, are you on the street? When, you, when this happens, are you, you're literally just standing on the street? We're inside of our vehicles on okay. the street watching. Okay. Because we really couldn't necessarily stand. People would notice us. Standing there for hours. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, and they already notice us even in our cars sometimes. Um, when you're good, though, at surveillance, you tend to blend in a little bit better. Um, so that's part of your secret, right? That's, it is. That's part of the story of Jen. Jen a little bit. Jen can blend in. She is comfortable in our office with lawyers with suits on, and she has worked on cases with us, civil cases where we have a very drug addict client, and you will talk to that person the same way you talk to me. Or, or the ability to communicate is at the highest level. That's your, I mean, I, I agree. in my in opinion, that, that's, yeah. that's your secret sauce. It's definitely a gift. Um, and I think that, you know, being, Non-judgmental has helped me be very successful and treat everyone I encounter as a human being. And is that something you had to develop, or something that you, how you were raised, or or something that you've learned over the course of your career? I was raised in a single-parent home with no father figure other than my uncles, 
and I helped raise my brother because my mom had to work. And I lived in Fairport. I went to Fairport High School, but was always judged because I grew up in Fairport that I lived in an apartment. And, you know, it's just one of those things I didn't like being judged. I was never really bullied. I don't think people felt that they could bully me even in high school. And I just always, you know, it's, it's definitely something that's learned over time because I feel like we're all guilty of being judgmental, even though I try not to be. I still do find myself being judgmental. It's just something you always have to be aware of and work on. And I would not have been successful if I was judgmental because people would not have talked to me. And I connected with most people I encountered and they would give me information. And a lot of cases relied on those people in the community that I connected with. And they are still with me to this day, those members of the community, confidential informants, private citizens. Um, and, you know, going back to the gang shooting in Rob Marangola, so once this van pulls over, I position myself in a way. I, you know, there's certain cases because we do, you know, I've been involved in thousands of investigations. It's hard to remember every single one, but this one I remember like so much of. There's no reason in my mind that that van should have pulled over. They just shot up a house and I know it. I watched it. And I thought that all of us were in for the shootout of our lives. Um, and one by one, they, the gang members listened to the commands from the uniform officers of getting out of the vehicle one by one. I watched where each one of them came from within that van. And there was two of them that had bulletproof vests on when they were taken out of the van. And I remember there being only one casing from all of those rounds, one casing that was located in the van. And we went back to the public safety building. And like I said, I work with the same investigators my whole career. So everyone knew I had young kids at home. I didn't always stay late, but there's always a time and a place like for, it's your turn, right? So I was the one that drafted the search warrants for that van and we searched the van I remember and didn't find anything but we knew there had to be something in that van because we never lost sight of it and we finally located in one of the rear wheel wells six guns all loaded oh my gosh. six gang members <laughs> six guns and it's like that's what I hear Rob Marangola saying to me, but I don't know if you remember Eric Hitzel. So Eric Hitzel originally had that case and I got called. So like I said, we worked 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. I got called, come to grand jury because if you don't indict, you know, before a certain time, they're gonna get out, right? Or you have the preliminary hearing. 
So I packed up my son at the time. I think he, Max was four, and we were on our way to grand jury. I mean, Max grew up getting search warrants signed. He named the fish in Judge Geraci's office. Like, everyone knew Max. And packed him up. We're on our way to grand jury. Someone's going to watch Max while I testify. And we ended up getting into a horrific car accident at 441 and 250. And I remember calling Hitzel from the scene of that car accident and telling him, hey, like, I'm not going to make it. And honestly, like, I was so hysterical because I, my son was hurt. You know, I wasn't thinking clearly, and I told him, like, my son's dead, and I'm not going to make it. He's like, shut up, Morales. Get up. Get to grand jury. And I'm like, like, no, like, screw you, Eric. I'm done. Like, click. I'm not coming. And obviously, once the dust settled, my son was fine. You know, he spent the night in the hospital. I spent the night with him. I ended up realizing I broke my kneecap in half during Ouch. that car accident. And the next day, an RPD car, one of my husband's friends picked me up from the hospital and brought me to grand jury because I had to testify. And the suppression hearings came after grand jury and Rob Marangola had taken over the case from Hitzel because Hitzel left the office. And I met with Rob and Rob was very direct and to the point and he said, you're gonna memorize each one of these guns and what they were loaded with and how many rounds each one had. And I said, you're kidding me, right? Like, that's what my report's for. And he's like, you're gonna memorize them because it's gonna look so much better when you testify seamlessly at this suppression hearing. And then when you testify at trial, so you're going to memorize them. And then, you know, I did, and it was seamless. And that was my relationship with Rob, where it started. And then, you know, Rob's obviously a, you know, reputable United States attorney now. So my career really continued with Rob having a few more of my cases as a district attorney and him pointing out all of the issues with whatever cases I had, you know, or pointing out little things in my reports, like this is where you made a mistake and own it, just own it. And really those relationships, Rob Marangola, Jen Summers, Stephanie Barnes, um, the United States Attorney's Office with Andy Rodriguez and Rob, I have learned so much from, from them and continue to, honestly. I think Andy Rodriguez, after I retired, two years after I retired, invited me to Buenos Aires, Argentina to speak at a legal symposiums where he was doing work over there. So it's a huge honor, you know, to be able to still work with them when I'm retired, you know, after being retired. So transitioning into what you do now, what made you decide that you wanted to get into private investigation? 
well, everyone knows, everyone that knows me, first of all, nobody believed I would ever retire, ever. Everyone thought I was kidding. But the game, because it is a game, right? And sometimes I would, we would talk about that in my interviews with defendants I was interviewing, suspects, even witnesses, that really life is a game. We're all playing a game, and I might not come home from that game, or guess what, Mr. Witness or Mrs. Bad Guy, you might not make it home, you know, or you might go to jail. And... I decided that, yes, I loved being a cop. I loved it. I loved the adrenaline rushes. I loved digging into a case and solving it. But I love my family more. And I'm very impulsive. I'm a little reckless sometimes, not thinking about, you know, my safety. Um, there, you it was a problem sometimes where we would jump out of our undercover cars and act because we had no other time, you know, to call for backup. And it was important for me to always protect the citizens of Rochester, protect the people that I worked with. It was just an instinct. I never thought about my own safety. Um, but this gives you the best of both worlds. For you it really does. And I just was like, you know what, I'm going to retire. But I can't give up digging into, you know, an investigation or helping somebody or solving someone's problems, fixing their problems. Right. So I retired. I'm like, well, I'll do private investigating. You know, so I took my license test down in Syracuse, got my license and started my own PI business. And Stephanie Barnes, who's one of my very best friends, said, should take a look at some criminal defense work. And that's where I'm like, you know, I'm not doing that. I can't do that. I'm not ready. And then she slowly got me to look at some cases in Ontario County, which is where I think I saw you, Bob, during yeah. that Geneva case, you're the self-defense case. Yeah, you're, that was my client. You worked on that. That was my very first like, major homicide investigation, even though it was a self-defense case where my client was defending his home against an intruder. Second story apartment where like, as a police officer, I know like one of our essential rights is to defend our homes. So just to make sure that my client was, you know, I guess worthy of me investigating his case and taking it, before I agreed to take it, I reenacted the, the actual incident by placing a card table against the home a ladder on top of the table. And this is where, like, you know, as a cop, I would always do things that little questionable, like, what are you doing that for? Because it's a little crazy. I climbed the ladder, and I could have fallen off this ladder and broken my neck. So I actually climbed through the window. So I'm like, okay, I'm in. I'm all in. And... That case will be with me forever because it is such an injustice to what happened to my client. Um, but Stephanie's the one that started, you know, me into take a look at these cases down in Ontario County and some of the surrounding counties because 
police work isn't the same down there as it is in Monroe County. And it's not as thorough. And I oh. think it, it's important. Well, in, in some ways, I want to touch on that because it, it gets to be very frustrating. Where, oh my where gosh. we came up through Monroe County and you had, you know, so we're in the early 2000s when you're doing this crazy stuff, that's when I become a prosecutor. There's a lot of crime here, and that's not good for our community. But what it is good for is police officers. getting. It's good for lawyers. You're getting your 10,000 hours in. Thank God the rural areas, maybe there's not many serious crimes. Right. And they don't have the experience. I mean, you have an investigator, an RPD, just a rank-and-file young investigator. They're doing a robbery every day. They're doing a burglary every day. They're doing two murders today. Some guy out in Cayuga County who's seen two murders in his whole career in 20 years, they can't, they cannot yeah. do, they don't, like, you have the spidey senses because you've seen a thousand of this moment, like what you were talking about with the van. Mm-hmm. The van, I know this is a problem. This ain't right. Like, and thank God it worked out and they came out of the vehicle, but you knew right away. If you haven't seen a thousand, you, you don't know that. Right. And I mean, I think for us as lawyers, Prosecutors and defense attorneys are doing tons of cases in Monroe County. Well, we've seen 2,000 files. And you go against some country lawyer who hasn't seen much serious stuff, and they don't even know what they're looking at. Well, And I'm from the country. I'm not here to disparage the country. We both are. I mean, yeah. whether, whatever county you're working in, what does your job entail? Like, what and who are your clients? Like, who's – that's what – because I don't think – most people don't understand. Like, what, what do you – what – do you do? Someone calls you up and... I think we do whatever it takes to get the job done for, and fix people's problems. Cause and it might I, be different on who's hiring you, right? So 100%. attorneys hire you to supplement their cases. Um, and then do, I mean, just normal people hire you also if they're like trying to yes. find someone or... Private citizens yes. hire us because it's, you know, it's almost the same as an attorney's job, right? We want to help someone with their problems. So I'll speak. So when when I call Jen, I have a lack of facts, and we use her in civil cases and criminal cases. Even though her experience is criminal, I'm doing mostly civil, so I tend to call her. And I have a scenario where somebody's usually right now for me hurt, and I say, Jen, I need more facts. I need to talk to the neighbors. What's going on? What's the story with these people? That's what I do, and I don't know what other lawyers do, but I'm like, there's nobody better at figuring out what the hell is going on in a particular scenario than Jen. So that's, or like in a criminal case, someone, like an attorney, is like, I got to find this person. And this well, this is what the police report says. Yeah. This is what the police report says. That doesn't make sense, and I know that's what Greg Greg does. Uh, some of our high end criminal, he yeah. uses Jen a lot, and this doesn't make sense. And we just kind of turn it over to you. We we trust your experience and judgment and say, you know, just figure it out. I I would suspect other lawyers are a little more. um, I feel like most lawyers that know me kind of do the same thing. Like, here you go. Here's the paperwork. Let me know what you think. And then let's talk. Yeah. And then we figure out an investigative plan and move forward. Um, But like, I've been fortunate enough once I retired in my PI business, and once my PI business, and it did take off right away, 
after two years, I met a former New York State trooper, Tracy Cass. And I had always known of Tracy. I think Tracy had always known of me, but we never really connected on anything. And during COVID, I needed really good help on a high profile case in Menden. So I asked Tracy for some help. And, you know, we kind of joked around like, oh, we'd make a good team and we should merge. And at the end of that year, we decided to merge because that was when the city of Rochester police officers who were involved in the Daniel Prude incident, they needed our help. And that's when I actually, so James Nobles, you know, local defense attorney who, not going to lie, he's on my list if I ever got arrested, <laughs> that I would call him. He's on our list too. Right? <laughs> so not going to lie, like he's always been on my list. He's very smart, very good, very aggressive, and was always very respectful of the investigators or police officers that he was uh, cross-examining on the stand. So I always respected him. And he ended up being one of the attorneys that was representing the RPD guys. And that's where, you know, I say, like, everyone needs a good team, right? And they all, everyone has a right to good investigators, whether it's prosecutorial side or criminal defense side, because those guys needed good investigators because RPD investigators were no longer allowed to touch that case. So Tracy and I came in and... I remember sitting down with James Nobles and he asked me, so are you like good with sitting across the table from me? I'm like, I'm good. Like, yeah, it's fine. Like, we're, we have a job to do. Let's get it done. Well, and then you guys teamed up on a really big case. And yeah. then we teamed up on, he was called to be a special prosecutor in a homicide case out of Arondacoit. And then Tracy and I, you know, became investigators on that case for uh, Nobles and Yates County District Attorney Todd Casella. So it was like we got to do police work again, which was amazing, and I loved it. And, you know, it kind of put me right back into being able to dig into a case. And so many, you know, there were so many moving parts to this homicide case and working with you know, individuals that had uh, some pretty serious issues, drug issues, uh, prostitution, and it's kind of my specialty, being able to find people and create relationships with them so that they could show up to court when they needed to. And Aren't you ever nervous that, like, if you go to someone's house to go talk to them, how they're going to react to you? No. I'm not ever nervous. That's really? it's a, it's it's a gift, but it's also especially a if fault. you're going there and something about that maybe they don't want to talk about either. Are there any times like what if someone doesn't want to talk to you? I mean, what do you do? I'm always respectful. If somebody doesn't want to talk to me, I always let them know. Well, first of all, if they're disrespectful to me, I'm not going to tolerate that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm really never scared. I probably should be, but I'm not. Um, but if somebody doesn't want to talk to me, they might say, you know, give me some time. So I will let them have time because to pressure them, 
it's not going to help our case. Mm -hmm. So it's more beneficial for, for us to, and for me to say, like, I respect that. I understand why you don't want to talk to me. And I might, if I see a window, throw some more at them and get them to keep talking. Right. Or I might just walk away, depending on the circumstance. So it just depends. But there are people that don't, but it's, I find it very few and far between. Yeah. Have you ever, or is there a case where there's just been such a plot twist or like a, wow, I can't believe that just happened moment? while you've investigated, maybe. <laughs> I've had more as a private investigator than ever as a police investigator. I mean, the case, that sex abuse case, sex abuse case we just worked on. With Greg? With Greg. With the, that was with, crazy. With all the wives and, and all that. So that was pretty crazy, right? That was crazy. It was heartbreaking all at the same time. Um, and I'm so thankful it ended well for our client being acquitted of all charges. But, you know, when I was looking into so the, so just the, little the victim. Bit of the, the little bit of the backstory is there's an allegation of a guy sexually abusing, he's a nurse, sexually abusing somebody within a hospital. A patient. And it did not make sense. It didn't add up. The guy didn't add up. The other guy was a really bad guy, which we knew. The victim was. Yeah, the Alleged quote, victim. Yeah, the, the yes. quote victim had all these serious fraud felonies, crazy stuff, filed this lawsuit. It was something, it was like red flags all over the place, so we get Jen involved. So that's the backstory. Like, is this true? And there's there's some evidence, but it doesn't it doesn't quite add up. So you, like, just, this is a case that we actually worked on. Like, what did you do? Tell, tell us kind of the, the five-minute version of what you did and, and then how you talked to the people. Well, I did a background on the alleged victim in that case, and... You know, looked through the reports, and you know, in that case, the police officers that responded, the hospital staff that responded, um, that I had talked to, nobody really believed the victim in this case. It was, you know, they definitely had their doubts, especially because the nurse, our client, had such a reputation of being such. A professional at all times and such a mentor to you know anyone he worked with and none of it made sense so I did a really thorough background on the alleged victim and found a lot of history that really made you question whether he was telling the truth or not which is huge right because we know if you're not a credible witness that's going to play out huge when we go to trial. Um, and it really makes you question the littlest details in the case. So the alleged victim, we learned, I worked on that with, with your partner, Greg Kolovecchia, and Greg told me, you know, he had found that article in the Democrat and Chronicle that the alleged victim had been married, but yet we had paperwork where the wife on the paperwork in the civil lawsuit he had filed against the hospital was not the wife in the Democrat and Chronicle article where he was married on Valentine's Day. A few years ago, not too long ago. 2017. Yeah. So 
you know, Greg and I were trying to rationalize it in our heads. Like, well, maybe they're separated, they're separated yeah. or like maybe, you know, we just trying to rationalize things. So I went out and tried to find both mm-hmm. wives. And sometimes I think that I'm blessed with like having some sort of, I guess, luck too, because I was never able to connect with the wife involved in the civil paperwork. Okay. Every time I went to the home where I thought I would find her, nobody would answer the door. Nobody was there. And I had gone to the wife in the paper's house as well. Nobody would answer the door. Well, my mother lives in Arondacoy, and I always try to take care of her on the weekends. And it was a Sunday evening. I had left my mom's house a little bit later than normal. And the wife from the newspaper article where I didn't think he was with this wife anymore. He couldn't be, right? Because there's a new wife in this civil document from the incident that we're investigating. So I went to her home in the city and I knocked on the door. I noticed right away, I'm very observant, noticed things and I noticed she had a ring doorbell. So I'm always very cognizant of that. Knocked on the door and the alleged victim in this case answered the door and I was like, Uh oh "Oh my God, (laughs) what am I gonna do? Well, I had already also done my homework on the wife, Mm -hmm. wife number one, two, like we have no idea which one she really is. Yeah. So I knew she, you know, liked to do crafts and would sell them at the public market. So I asked for her and said that I was there to, you know, pick up some crafts Mm -hmm. because I didn't want her or... Right. Have the, our the conversation would have been over. It would have been like, over right this away. Is why I'm here. <laughs> he would have never let me talk to her. Yeah, never. So she came outside, and for some reason, she trusted me right away. She's such a nice woman, and I asked her. I said, "Listen, I know you don't know me, but I need you to step off this porch and come down to the sidewalk and talk with me. I know you have a ring doorbell." Mm-hmm. And I introduced myself to her. I told her I'm, you know, former. A police investigator, I'm a licensed private investigator now, and I said to her, I am so sorry. I am not in this business to hurt people. I don't like hurting people. And I feel like what I'm about to ask you and tell you is going to be so incredibly hurtful. It's going to rock your world. It's going to really hurt. And I apologize in advance. And I explained to her the situation and uh, asked if she had known her husband was in the hospital, and she did. She knew very little details about this whole scenario. Um, she had no idea he was claiming to be married to someone else. She had no idea who the other wife was, and it was heartbreaking. Um, but she trusted me, and I. Right. But it just also proves that this guy isn't credible, and he's hundred percent not credible. A liar. And, he, and that's what she said, like that he would do anything, he would lie, 
to gain, you know, to get ahead, to get money. Mm -hmm. So that's a plot twist right there. (laughs) It really was. It was a game changer. It was a game changer. It really was. And she testified for us at trial. She did. She did. And what a courageous, I just got goosebumps, courageous woman, honestly. I, I admire her. Like, going back, like, how do you walk back into the house knowing that this just, with this information and acting like nothing was wrong? And I told I her. I would not have the willpower. I wouldn't either. And yeah. I said that to her, you know, I said, I don't know how you're about to handle this, but listen, I can give you the opportunity to have your day. You know, you've been lied to all of these years. Mm-hmm. You've been supporting this man who didn't even work. Mm-hmm. And you can have your day. One of those, you know, she envisioned it and so did I. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> the whole drama from TV of like, you know, the courtroom doors opening yeah. and here she comes, right? The real wife. Right. Um, but I really admired her because she did an amazing job. And, you know, I'm really thankful. Like even the, the judge in the case, it was hard watching her, you know, testify because you could tell it was genuine. She was crushed. Yeah. Crushed that someone could do that to her. So she's amazing. I, was not, I didn't watch the trial. I watched uh, as much as I could. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, if I, if I remember what Greg told me, correct, the, we put her up on the defense case. Greg puts her up on the defense yes. case. The prosecutor maybe asked one question and, and doesn't even have – the heart to ask her another question and sits down. You could tell the prosecutor wanted to go after her and realized very quickly, like, she truly was a victim of this alleged victim as well and did not go after her, which I was so thankful for because, you know, there's a time and a place, and that was not it. I think that's one of the benefits of, of our firm and Greg specifically. He was he did 20 homicides as a prosecutor, so and you, but the team you two seem to be a really great team. And your strengths you have a lot of core investigative values that overlap, but different, some different strengths and weaknesses. Obviously, he's an attorney, you're an investigator, uh, but you're going out trying to. You can't always do it, but trying to prove people innocent. And there's, I think Greg's very good at getting his evidence and he's called you know the prosecutor they're going to put on their case well we're going to put on our case and we're going to call witnesses and we're going to subpoena people and they're going to come in and there's not a whole lot of defense attorneys who have the ability you know they're trained to poke holes in the prosecution's story but can they actually prove someone's innocence and that's what you know that well, good, good defense that's attorneys. why you're valuable, too, is because you show the facts. Whether one side's going to like it more than the other, like, you have, you hold the truth of I think, what the facts are. You know, so our it's firm, valuable. I, yeah, I think a good lawyer, and hopefully our firm can, we can put forward the facts, but we can only put forward the facts that we have. And we can only right. get the facts, and that's the... And that's what we always tell people that we do talk with. We only want the truth, right? Right. So we can best, you know, advise our clients whether to take a plea, not take a plea, move forward in this, not move forward in this. Um, it's one of those investigative tools and attorney tools that 
yeah, you can poke holes, but you have to have the evidence to back it up. And, or, you know, maybe our clients are involved in, you know, the crime itself, if that's what we're investigating. And we just have to look at all of the facts to make a judgment call on what's acceptable to take and what's not acceptable to take. Or if they are innocent, how far are we going to take this? You know, how far are we willing to go? And with our reputations, too, a lot of – because we don't do shady stuff. I I certainly – you're not going to get far in this town if you do. People are going to know right away if you are shady, right, or if you – conduct yourself in a manner that is not going to be conducive to helping a case. And if you ever have to testify, once you do something that's not above board, you get on the the witness stand and they can say, hey, didn't you break the rules the last time? You're done. And you're good for nothing. Absolutely. So with Greg, Greg and I both care too much. You know, we, we truly care about each case we do no matter how bare or small it is. Mm-hmm. We care about it, and like I said, it's it can be a gift sometimes, and it's also a fault because it consumes you, you know, 24 hours a day. Yeah. It does. Your it hours, you. there are, it's not a nine to five. You're always working. Always, always, you know, and it's not unusual for, you know, me to be emailing at two, three in the morning. Yeah. and. You for me to get me a response. Day at like 2 <laughs> I did. I did. I did. I couldn't sleep that night. You so. worked overnights a lot. I have one last. I have go one ahead. more yeah, question. Is what is your favorite part about this job? What do you love about it? I can't pick one. I really I mean, can't. I I really love, like, I have the ability to think outside the box and get a job done, no matter what job that is. And I think that a lot of people know that. Most people that I worked with know that. You know, if we were going to be out on surveillance, it was like, okay, John, what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to get that person out of this house? Mm-hmm. It, it's just that ability to think outside the Always box. Always thinking, yeah. Yeah, my brain does not shut off. It does not. It's a problem. I, I don't know. I find the person, like, I just think being a private investigator is one of the coolest jobs that you could have. I do love my job. And, like, we do do so many different things, Tracy and I. Like, we always try to – whoever calls us, private citizen attorney, we try to always be realistic, but we always think, we'll get this done. We'll figure it out. But it just seems thrilling. I mean, even on such a small scale of, like, you know, like, just – like you're trying to find someone on Facebook mm-hmm. and you like search and search and then you're like, yes, I found them. Yeah. Like that high. And that's We're not afraid to hide in bushes. We're not afraid <laughs> yeah. to like hide in the trunk yeah. of our car. Well, Tracy's a lot taller than me. It's easier for me to hide in the trunk, but we'll do whatever it takes. Have you hid in the trunk? All the time. Oh I did God. it as a police officer too. Wow. Literally in the middle of, you know, the west side of the city. How else are you going to sit there and watch someone for 10 hours? Yeah. What do you do if you have to go to the bathroom or something? Hold it. Oh, my God. I can't. Because you can't. <laughs> you know, in some situations, you can get backup yeah. to come take your place. Right. But you're in the middle of Jefferson Avenue in the city, and you got a good spot. Yeah. And I'm in my trunk, which right. is, you know, with tinted windows. I can't move. Yeah. Sitting, you know, in an abandoned house driveway. Yeah. You can't move because they're watching you. Someone will see you. Okay. It's crazy. So. 
But it's fun. Yeah. Lots of fun. It does seem fun. I have really good scrapbooks. I feel like I would love this job, but I don't know if I could we take gotta it. Bring Jen, we got to bring Jen <laughs> back. We got to bring yes. Jen back and do some more of this. We but need I a wanna, part two. We definitely need a part two. But so I have one last question. So the young police officers, if you could tell a first year cop one thing, what do you tell them? It's hard to. I remember Bill Gargan asking me to tell the young DAs, what would I tell them? And I remember telling the young DAs that were under Bill Gargan at the time, he also was a good mentor. Communication is key to communicate with your officers. That was huge when they wouldn't communicate, you know, the young DAs that wouldn't communicate with us. It was really, really frustrating, especially because I am a mom as well. And I'm an aunt that helped take care of my nieces. So to not communicate when I also have a life outside of the police department was very frustrating. Um, to tell young cops, I think it would be to really take the time to understand a situation fully. You know, get the backstory as much as you possibly can in the moment and understand it and really think about things before you act on it, you know, really to, to do that and to be non-judgmental and treat people the way you would want you, you yourself treated or your family member treated. Because I always try to put myself in someone else's position and see both sides of something, you know, and understand the situation fully. And I'm not saying, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes every day, but I also learn every day still. Good advice. Yeah, beautiful answer. For everyone. So, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah.